Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I am uh, grateful for the opportunity to stand before you this morning. I, 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 this is not my first time preaching. It's my first time preaching here with you, but it's been a while, so it might sound like it. So just bear with me. But Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be looking there in just a moment. You probably aren't familiar with the name Julius Saman. Anybody know Julius Saman or Saman? No? You're probably familiar with something he's made, though. You ever seen those little pine tree air fresheners hanging in a, a car on the mirror? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, he invented those. He invented those. In 1952, there was a milk truck driver who was complaining to Julius about the, the smell of spilled milk. It's an awful smell. Well, Julius, because of some of the uh, experience he's had, he developed uh, an air freshener specifically for that problem, and that's where we get those little trees you see hanging in the cars. Now, you fast forward a little bit, and one of the scents that was added to that lineup of, of car air fresheners was new car smell. New car smell. Now, you're probably all familiar with that in some way or another, right? Maybe not the tree, but we're familiar with the idea of a new car smell. But that, that brings a question to my mind. How can we tell if something is new? How can we tell if it is indeed truly new, right? I mean, you, you get to thinking about this. If you get a, a, a 1998 Chevy Cavalier, and you hang one of those little trees in the mirror with that new car smell, you get in it, are you going to automatically assume that it's a 2024 uh, Chevy Malibu? Probably not, right? I mean, there's something there that smells right, but there's other things. So how can you tell if something's new? It, it, maybe it smells different. Maybe it looks different, feels different. Maybe, maybe something about it is just different, right? Something about it. Is just different. You can tell when some. I, I love when I get a new Bible, for instance, and you, you have that feel of it, and it's nice and supple, and you, you smell the pages, and it just smells new. You can tell when something is new. Now, it might depend on what the item is, but in different, or in, in, in short, something is just different about it. Well, listen, Christians are those who have been made new. We have been made new. We are new creations who have new hearts and we have been set on a new path to walk. A, a Christian's new life should look different than their old life. It should be, I would say, noticeably new to others. In our text this morning, Paul is describing the Christian's new life and contrasting it with the old life, the former life. and In other words, how we should live versus how we used to live. Or we could say who we are in Christ versus compared to who we are outside of Christ. So look, if you would, at the text, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking there, starting in verse 17. Paul's writing and he says, now this I say, would you stand? I want to honor the reading of God's word. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hand so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you this morning. Now, this, this passage... It, it, I took a pretty big chunk, and this text that we're looking at could easily be divided up into several sermons, a, a mini-series, if you will, but I have one Sunday, so we're going to summarize, and I have three points that I want to get through with you today, and that is, number one, the follies of the old walk. The follies of the old walk, we see that in verses 17 to 19, and then we're going to look at the foundation for the new walk. And that is from verse 20 to 24. And then from verse 25 to chapter 5, verse 2, we will see the features of the new walk. So the follies of the old walk, the foundation of the new walk, and then the features of the new walk. So starting at the beginning of our text, I need to actually rewind to the beginning of chapter 4, which we didn't read, but that's all right. I'm going to sum it up. At the beginning of chapter 4, Paul calls us to walk in a way that is worthy of our calling, in a way that is worthy of our calling. If you remember in chapter 1, Paul was praying for the Ephesians, and he prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be opened or enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which they were called. And Paul also says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that we are called to a holy calling, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 1, that we share in a heavenly calling. Now, you go to 2 Peter. He says that God called us to his own glory and excellence. Look, I could go on and talk more and more about our calling and what it looks like. But just from this, we see that we have a, a hopeful, we have a holy, we have a heavenly, we have a God-honoring calling as Christians. And it's not some arbitrary 
calling because right after Paul, in the beginning of chapter four, right after he says that we need to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling, he immediately goes into the implications of that calling of our Christian walk within the unity of the body. He's calling them to be unified as God's church. And so immediately we see that the way we walk as Christians has impacts in the body as a whole. And then you come to verse 17, and he's describing a certain kind of walk, which we've read about, that the Ephesians must avoid. So there's a way we should walk and a way we should not walk. You look there at verse 17. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. No longer walk. In other words, they cannot continue in a lifestyle that is similar to their past as though they have not been changed, as though they have not been made new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation does not keep on sinning. Now, why do I say that? Because 1 John chapter 5, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God, everyone who has been made new, does not keep on sinning. In other words, the life of a Christian is marked by sanctification. Luke this morning said that a lot of people don't know what sanctification is. They don't know much about that. They're spiritually immature and they don't know what it means to be growing in holiness. But a Christian's life should be marked by that growing in holiness. That is what sanctification is. It is becoming more like Christ. Christians' lives then should be marked by repentance and spiritual growth. 2 Peter chapter 3 commands us to grow, to grow, not to remain the same, not to become stagnant, but to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. I find this interesting. What, what is a, a Gentile? A Gentile was a non-Jew. That seems pretty straightforward. The Greek word for Gentile is ethnos. It's where we get the word for ethnic or ethnicity. And it can simply refer to the nations. Uh, it can also refer to unbelievers in general. In other words, those who do not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They do not believe in the one true God, and therefore they are referred to as Gentiles. So here in verse 17, Paul is writing to Gentile Christians. I want you to notice that. He's writing to Gentile Christians, and he's telling them, urging them not to live like Gentiles. Hey, you Gentiles, don't walk like Gentiles. Now, as a, a, just a, a side note here, I think this addresses a misunderstanding even that we have or that we can tend to have towards our personality quirks. We tend to excuse ourselves and others of sinful behavior by saying things like this. Well, that's, that's just how I am. I'm blunt. Or, well, he just has a crass personality. Don't mind him. Paul doesn't let that slide here. 
He says, I, I know you're Gentiles. I know that you're Gentiles, but don't live like Gentiles. I, you were an unbeliever, but you are not any longer. You have been made new. You, yes, are in the world, but you are not of it anymore. You have a citizenship in heaven. Now, the picture that Paul gives us in verses 17 through 19 of the old walk is just dreadful. It's full of folly. Look there, if you would, at verse 17, the latter part. It says that they walk, how? In the futility of their mind. The word futility or vanity, it means empty or pointlessness. Uh, Their minds were set on the things of the world And therefore, they were focused on things that didn't ultimately matter. But Paul in Colossians chapter 3 calls Christians to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are below. But these individuals have their minds set on things of the world, and therefore, their their thinking, their, their minds are full of vanity, emptiness, pointlessness. You see in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They are darkened in their understanding. Now, it's ironic because the belief among many non-Christians is that they are enlightened. You, you ask any atheist, and they're going to, you say, well, why don't you believe in, in God? Or why don't you believe in the Bible? And they're going to say, well, based on science and the knowledge that we have acquired, we have learned how to move beyond those archaic ideas and those things of the past, and we now have more knowledge, and so therefore we don't need that anymore. And they view themselves as enlightened. But they are not. Their understanding is darkened, and they are futile in their thinking. And if you see in verse 18 as well, they have also been alienated from the life of God. What does that mean? Spiritually dead. They are spiritually dead. Now, Paul earlier referred to unbelievers as those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Chapter 2. No matter how healthy or active or happy or productive or creative people might be, if they do not know Jesus, then they are severed from the only true source of life. And Paul gives two reasons for that condition. He says at the last part of verse 18, it is because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Now listen, ignorance is not an excuse for unbelief. Ignorance is not an excuse for unbelief. Romans chapter 1, turn there if you would. We'll look at a a passage that we're probably all familiar with. Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing, and I I can't tell you how many times I've used this passage, but Romans chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20. I want you to notice what Paul says here about knowledge, about truth, about the minds and the hearts of these individuals. He says, for the wrath, starting in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Somebody might stand before God one day and say, I didn't know. It's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. They are morally responsible. Note this. They are morally responsible for their ignorance. They cannot blame their ignorance on anyone other than themselves. So, so why? why? Why is theirs a culpable ignorance? Well, consider why the ignorance is in them. You, we just saw it in Romans 1. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice how it says it in our text today. It is verse 18, due to their hardness of heart. The ignorance that is in them due to, why are they ignorant? Because of the hardness of their heart. It is a stubborn, willful resistance to the truth of the gospel. They are so in love with sin that they ignore God. And if that were not enough, he says in verse 19 that they were also callous. You ever played the guitar? You move your fingers back and forth and man, when you start, it hurts. Your fingertips are sore. You went through this, didn't you? Yeah. You, you, you talked about some kids coming in. Yeah. Your fingertips are so sore, but after a while, what happens? They get calloused. And all of a sudden, you can't feel it anymore. One translation says that they are past feeling. The word means to lack a moral sensitivity. It's an inability to feel shame, an inability to blush, a loss of emotional or spiritual capacity to feel embarrassed for one's conduct. Do we not see this in our world today? Do we not, you turn the news on and do you not see people living in just open, unrepentant sin, these shameful lifestyles, things that scripture clearly condemns and they are flaunting it all around and they don't care why they are calloused. And listen to the outcome of this calloused, of this callousness. Well, before we do notice, notice what, what Paul says about them being in this condition. Verse 19. <clears throat> Verse 19, he says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to. Notice that. Notice the wording. They have given themselves up to. They have given themselves. They are, again, morally responsible for their actions. This, this immorality did not come upon them against their will. They chose this sin. They wanted it. 
And so therefore, they are fully and freely responsible for the condition that they are in. Their wicked disposition is characterized by two sins in particular, sensuality and impurity. Such people, again, they flaunt their sin. They have no regard for others or for public decency. He says they are greedy to practice. They can't get enough of it. Their hunger for sin is insatiable. They are never satisfied. Just pause, going outside my notes here. Does that not... Does that not remind us of how blessed we are being in Christ that we have the only source of true satisfaction? We as Christians can be satisfied, but the unbeliever will never be satisfied. They are addicted to their sin. Their lives are marked by unrepentant sin, shameful lifestyles, But notice the switch in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. The life to which Paul is calling his readers and us is one that is in keeping with and reflective of our experience with Christ. Hear the name Christ when he says, That is not the way you learned Christ. When he says Christ, that the name of Christ represents the truth about Christ or the the essence of the Christian gospel. It's like when Paul says proclaiming Christ. He's not talking about just merely proclaiming the name or the person, but the whole gospel of Christ, the whole truth of Christ. And so here, Paul has in mind this idea when he says that is not the way you learned Christ. He has in mind this idea of being shaped and fashioned by a personal relationship with Christ. We might would say that learning Christ is equivalent to being saved. He essentially says, this is not how, this is not why you were saved. But notice there's a caveat in verse 21. This is not the way you learn Christ, verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him. Now, if you have an NIV, the conditional element of this verse is lost, but it is there. It is there, so I want to point it out. Assuming that, Paul is saying, you were not saved to live that way, assuming, if indeed, if so be that, you were, in fact, saved. In short, it's referring to our initial reception of the gospel message. He speaks this way in chapter 1, verse 13 even. He says, in him you also, when you heard, you get this? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So here he is talking about hearing the word of truth, that is the gospel, with being saved. This is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him assuming that you are indeed sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So I want us to pause here and consider, are you in fact saved? Have you heard the word of truth and believed? Have you, to use the language here, have you learned 
Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Listen, we need to do an inventory. We need to stop and ask ourselves, am I on this new path? Am I walking the walk or have I just been talking the talk? Coming to church every week, that doesn't save you. Trying to live by some moral principles, it doesn't save you. Look, we're going to go over some moral principles here in just a minute. But simply living by those does not mean you are saved. It is a faith a belief, a trust in Jesus Christ that he stood in your place on Calvary. It is knowing that he paid the price for your sins and trusting in him alone for salvation. Are you saved? Or have you simply hung a new Christian scented air freshener on your life hoping that you can fool people? Or are you truly a new, new creation? There are some who talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Paul, talking about some false teachers, for instance, in Titus chapter 1, he says, they profess to know God. You get that? They profess. Don't we love professions? Amen. We love professions. But here it says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, their life doesn't match their profession. We must examine ourselves. Are we walking like the Gentiles? Or are we walking like Christ? Paul goes on to say that they have been taught in him, the latter part of verse 21 that they have been taught in him. Now, this refers to our ongoing instruction in the Christian faith, particularly our knowledge of Jesus. We are continually growing, as, as Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, we are continually growing in the knowledge of our Savior. Of course, there are some specifics about what we've learned, about what we've been taught, and we're going to get to those in just a minute in verse 22. But first, there's this phrase at the very end of, of verse 21, where it says, as the truth is in Jesus. Taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, Paul's point is that truth can only be found in Jesus. In the knowledge and experience of and in relationship to him. In fact, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth. And the life. In fact, look, flip over to 1 John. It'll probably be the last place I have you flip. 1 John chapter 2. And as we look through this passage, I want you to, to note just a few things. 1 John, <coughs> 1 John chapter 2. I want you to notice the connections, the correlations between 
the anointing that we have received as Christians and the knowledge that we have, the truth that we have, and then also the abiding that accompanies all of that. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 20. He says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now listen, John is echoing what we're seeing in Ephesians chapter 4. He is echoing the very, the very idea of knowing, learning Christ, of being in him and walking that new life. In other words, as the anointing of the Holy One has taught you, abide in him. As you have learned Christ, walk like him. And Paul now explains in detail precisely what they and we have been taught. And there are three phrases in verses 22 to 24 that show what they've been taught in Christ. First, they have been taught to put off the old self. Verse 22, they have been taught to put off the old self. Now, what is the old self? The old self is, or the old man, we might say, it describes the whole personality of a person when he is ruled by sin. But they, who he is writing to, these Ephesians, they are new people who must become outwardly what God has already made them inwardly. And that involves a determination, a resolve to put off the old way of life. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul's writing and he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now listen, that is not about earning your salvation. It is about your moral responsibility to become outwardly what God has made you inwardly. So put off the old self. Secondly, they have been taught to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Verse 23. This is much like how Paul says in Romans 12 that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our, our thought life influences our actions. For instance, I think of James when he's talking about when you have those desires and those desires after they have festered a little while, they turn into what? Sin. They become the actual sin. You have to resist those things. You, and how do you do that? How do you renew your mind? St start with this. Start with just reading Scripture. 
and let the Holy Spirit through the word of God transform your thoughts and your minds. Again, it was said earlier, I think it was Luke who, who said this, that we, we often fall back into our old sinful ways. We often get into those old habits when we have become lazy with our devotions and our prayer life. Dig into God's word and let the truth of God's word renew your mind. And then third, they have been taught to, verse 24, put on the new self. Now I want you to notice a couple things about this new self in verse 24. It says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now this is, this is key, I think, to really the whole passage that we're looking at, right? Because he says, to put on the new self created, question, did you create the new self? No. It's a work of God. It is he who began a good work in you that will see it through to completion. So he says that we are to put on this new self, but this new self, we didn't have anything to do with it, did we? It was created by God in his likeness. In other words, he is both the author of this work and the pattern or the model for this work. He created it and it's in his likeness. We are being renewed to be like him. It's why we are called in Leviticus, and then Peter echoes it later in the New Testament, to be holy. Why? Why does God call us to be holy? Because He is holy. Be holy, for I am holy. And we are to put on the new self that is created by God in His likeness in true righteousness and holiness. So what does this new walk then look like? Well, there's some practical features, and Paul turns his attention away from the, the, uh, the old Gentile walk that we've been on, and he focuses on these practical features of holiness. In other words, what it looks like to walk like Christ. So what does it look like? Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We ought to be as Christians, as believers, as new creations, as those who are on a new walk, we ought to be speaking the truth. Amen. We should actively pursue and promote the truth. The reason given for this is right there in the text because we are members one of another. We must remember that fellowship is built on trust and trust is built on truth. But the deeper root of why lying is a sin is that it's an offense against a holy God. Yes. Lying or being deceitful is a rejection of Christ. What did he say? I am the way, the truth. In the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So being truthful then is to embrace Christ. And we should embrace him. Why? Because Christ is the reason we're members of one another. 
If it were not for Christ, we would not be members one of another in one body, being able to have the the unity in the mind of Christ within us. In fact, just go back to the beginning of chapter 4 that I mentioned earlier and you can see the importance of it. But also, verses 26 to 27, we're to practice a righteous anger. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, is there such a thing as righteous anger? Absolutely. It's a holy anger against sin. If we are indifferent to injustice and immorality and we look around at the world around us and we see all the things happening and we are indifferent and we do nothing about it, To make sure that we keep our anger holy, God gives us, or Paul, through the Holy Spirit, gives us three reminders. He says, be angry and do not sin. In other words, this is not a license to throw a fit, to have a tantrum, right? We, 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 we shouldn't be like our children. How many of you have seen children just throwing a tantrum because they are upset because they didn't get their way? Look, it's not a license to do that. It says, be angry. There's a command there. Be angry and do not sin. So what should we be angry about? We should be angry at sin. It's not a license to seek revenge or to do anything else that would dishonor the name of God. But then the the second reminder, be be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger, on your wrath. There's a time limit. Don't let it fester. Why? You should resolve it quickly because when you let it fester, what's going to happen? Bitterness is going to start to come up. It's going to take root and you're going to be dealing with such bitterness and it's going to, it's going to affect not only your spirit but your, your physical body. It will take its toll upon you. So the, the time to get angry then is very short. We should keep short accounts. And then third... Reminder, do not give an opportunity to the devil. In other words, seek forgiveness and reconciliation and do it quickly. Look, Satan would love to take your anger as an opportunity to make you violent and divisive, to turn you to sin. Even even a, a, a righteous anger if you're not careful, can become a sinful anger. And then look at verse 28. The Christian walk is one of generosity instead of greediness. You look there in verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, stealing is to be replaced by hard work. Christians then should have a good work ethic. Talk about practical living. You should have a good work ethic. You shouldn't go and clock in at work and then just sit around while the clock is running and the hour and the hour meter's going on and your your dollar signs are going up and hey, I just got paid 20 bucks to just stand around for a little while today. No. You should have a good work ethic. You should be productive. You should be seeking to do things that would be God-honoring. Let him who labors, labor in the Lord. 
But not only should we have a good work ethic, but we should be generous with what God has given us. We should be willing to help others. After all, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Look, you want to compare and contrast. The old walk was full of laziness and unpro- unproductiveness. And, and you had, you had a, a, a bad work ethic. But now as a new creation on this new walk, you have a good work ethic. And you are, you are being generous to those who are in need. And you are trying to be as productive as you can be with the time that you've been given. And then in verse 29, we see that we're to control our speech. Uh Uh-oh. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So what kind of things should we avoid? Lying, obscenity, abusive language, gossip, flattery that is manipulative. Negative, cynical remarks, slander, condescending speech, sarcasm that that cuts and degrades, mockery, ridicule. So what kind of speech then should we seek to develop? Encouragement, truth, words that build up confidence in others and remind them of their identity in Christ. Praise, comfort, sympathy, instruction, rebuke for sin. Loving criticism? Look, the tongue is a small member. But man, it can do a lot of damage. And as Christians, we ought to control our speech. Look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Now Paul is writing this command in the negative. If we were to word it in the positive, we might would say, and do that which is pleasing to the Spirit. So as Christians, we are to do what is pleasing to the Spirit. And and this is directly tied to our speech, to our action, to everything that was just, just said, all these other commands that Paul has given. This right here is tied to all of them. How many of you remember the bracelets that people used to wear that said WWJD, right? I don't know what the acronym would be, but how about what would the Holy Spirit do, right? What would the Holy Spirit, would this please the Holy Spirit? Would this grieve the Holy Spirit? As you are speaking, as you are interacting with your coworkers, with your students, with your teachers, with your parents, with your children, whatever it is you are doing, it ought to please the Spirit. And then you look at verses 31 to 32. And I think really what we have here is a summary of the old to the new. The old to the new. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Do you see the contrast? You see the old walk and the new walk. Take off those things of the old man, the bitterness and the the rage, and put on the new things, the new man, the kindness and the the forgiveness. And speaking of forgiveness, look there, if you would, at the end of verse 32. He says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness keeps us from harboring 
the anger that we talked about. Forgiveness keeps, keeps that bitterness from building up. But the motivation for our forgiveness, do you see it? And really the motivation for all the commands that we've just looked at, that Paul has listed, is that God in Christ forgave us. God forgave us in Christ by absorbing in himself the wrath and the judgment that we deserved. He absorbed in himself the destructive and the painful consequences of our sin against him. God forgave us in Christ by canceling the debt that we owed him. We are no longer held liable for our sins or in any way made to pay for them. But friends, look at the list that we've been going through of what the old walk looked like. That was you and that was me. We were sinners. We were so far from God. And yet he's reached out and he chose us. Why? Because of grace and mercy. That's all I can think of. It's not because of anything in me. It's not because of anything that I've done. I couldn't do these things myself. I couldn't live the way he's calling me to live here. God forgave us in Christ by reconciling us to himself, by restoring the relationship that our sin had severed. And because we have been forgiven, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We should seek to live a life of godliness, to walk in newness of life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've realized that you're still in that old walk, that your walk does not look much different from whenever you said you got saved or from the profession that you made till now, there's not really been any change in your life. Maybe you're starting to examine yourself and test yourself and you're realizing, I've never trusted in Christ. I've never, I've never learned Christ. I've never been taught in him. Then today, come to Christ. Yeah. Renounce the former ways and give yourself to God. He will draw you out of that pit of destruction and he will set your feet upon the rock. Yeah. But listen, it's because of what Christ has done that we can be made new. I'll say it again. It's because of what Christ has done that we can be made new. The only reason that we can live this way, this new walk that Paul is describing, the only reason that we can walk 
like Christ is because of the grace of God working in us. Outside of Christ, you cannot do this. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I want you to pause. Do you notice his emphasis on his own moral responsibility? I worked harder than any of them. Do you see how he's talking about what he has done? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. Listen, if we have learned Christ, if we have received the truth of the gospel, if we have been made new, then we ought to walk like him. I want to close with the words of Paul from 2 Thessalonians, and then we'll pray. But listen to what Paul says. He says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for what Jesus has done. And Lord, we are grateful for the calling that you have called us to. And so as beloved children, Lord, we lean on you, our holy heavenly Father, to enable us and to equip us to do that which you have called us to do. Help us then, Lord, to put off the old and to put on the new. Help us, Lord, to leave the old ways behind and to walk on the new path that you have set before us. Help us, Lord, to, Lord, to hide your word, to store it up in our hearts that we would no longer sin against you. Lord, I pray that your word would be a light unto our feet. Lord, that it would guide our paths. Lord, because without you, we are hopeless. Without you, we are nothing. Without you, we are lost. So God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask your help as we live for you. We ask it in your name. Amen.